Good morning. That was so lively, and I don't think it was because Mike was talking about all the changes and the giving. Woo! Thank you guys for being with us this morning. That was my Ric Flair. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, known as the Actions of the Apostles by the Holy Spirit. And as Mike was talking about, it's late March. We're almost into April. Like, we're almost done with the book of Acts, okay? So we've spent a lot of time in this book, but it's kind of in this place where we're going to see over the next few weeks what Paul has to go through. And this week, we continue in really what was a two-part mini-series about proclaiming a positive message in a negative circumstance. And we're going to unpack that even more today. After that proclamation of the gospel, while done by inferior individuals, both that we're reading about and us personally, it is a proclamation of a superior message that everyone, Jew, Gentile, dark or light-skinned, male or female, ought to hear the proclamation of the gospel. And it does so much more for people who proclaim it than I think we realize. For the proclaimer, if done out of love for Christ, it is doing an application that is actually walking in obedience that matures the person who's proclaiming the gospel. For the hearer, if if the invitation uh, is something that we receive by faith, we are then adopted into God's family, and we are precious and holy to God. The hearer, when responding to this grace through faith, enters into a relationship with God and becomes part of the church of the living God. For the bystander who maybe just sees the conversation happening, they both uh, will hear the truth of the gospel and also see the effects of the message for others. Now, sharing the gospel is more than just an exercise in Christianity. It is joining God in his work to make disciples of all nations, and that is what we're going to talk about today. Last week, we taught about what transpired while Paul was near the temple with his Greek companion and how the crowd and the commander from the Roman Empire, who eventually came with his soldiers, all had assumptions regarding Paul, and they were false but also created some tension, some threats towards Paul, all because of people's religious assumptions. When we left the passage last week, Paul spoke in Greek to the commander who had commandeered him, assuming that Paul was an Egyptian Jew who had been found a false prophet. Paul then asked for permission to address the crowd, or really the mob, who assumed and brought accusations against Paul. So let's pick up a few verses back where we left off last week, Acts 21, verse 40. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. Paul is about to share a defense. This word is apologetic of what he experienced and how the assumptions that have been made about him are untrue and unfounded. Have you ever had people make assumptions about you that were wrong? Yeah. Now, Paul was very cool, not just like he was a neat guy, but like he was cool, he was calm, he was collected while being threatened unto death and is now asking for permission to speak to this crowd beginning as he speaks, he calls them brothers and fathers, and then he shares his defense. Last week, I attempted to make the gospel in a tweet very simple. Here it is. We are saved by grace, through faith, by 
Yeah, Christ. Christ will work. Jesus will work. Just, yes. Okay. We are saved by grace, through faith, by Christ, or in Christ. And what strikes me regarding this message of salvation through grace, personified in Jesus, is that Paul was not as emotionally erratic as I am. Where circumstances may dictate my mood and reactions to things, Paul was just accused through a lot of assumptions of taking a Gentile into the temple and teaching against the law of Moses, where this caused such an uproar that the crowd wanted Paul dead. I don't know about you, but I don't tend to want to share good news with people who have just attempted to have me killed. And if you try to kill me, I'm not going to try to tell you how not to get dead. But this is Paul. Paul was focused on the mission. And the mission is proclaiming the gospel of grace to people. If you ever want to know what we do as Christians, we proclaim the gospel of grace to people. As Jesus said to his disciples in what the commentators call the Great Commission, Jesus came to them and said, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, Paul, while not present when Jesus said this to his disciples, in fact, at this point, he was an opponent of the grace of God, if he knew it or not. Yet he also learned not only what Jesus said, but Jesus confirmed all that Paul knows about the Old Testament. And this application of being on mission, which Paul was proclaiming and testifying to the grace of God and making disciples, is what Paul not only cares about, it is what we have seen him do ever since the book of Acts chapter 9. Paul was a witness of the Lord Jesus. He witnessed Jesus alive after he died. He talked with him, and doing what Jesus told his disciples, many who became apostles to do, which was at the beginning of books, uh, the book of Acts, he said, chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so I need you to talk back to me. What does a witness do? I'm sorry, what does a witness do? Testify! That's what a witness does, and that's what we do when we think of the grace of God that has changed our life. We testify. Now, Paul is a witness, and he's testifying to what? To what someone else convinced him of? No. He's testifying to what he has seen and heard, and he's explaining it to this crowd of Jews. The first part of chapter 22, verse 2. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. His speaking in Aramaic, which was a form of Hebrew, quieted the crowd real quick because some did not expect him to be a Jew or speak their language. He's going to share a defense of his Jewish heritage and his commitment to the traditions of the law. He also will state his dramatic conversion, which we not only studied in Acts chapter 9, but his testimony that he has shared prior to this and he will share again in the future. What I love about what we're about to study is not so much about Paul defending himself, but using this captive audience that is stunned by Paul speaking their native language as a gospel opportunity. So let's hear what Paul says. Second part of verse 2. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia. 
but brought up in the city. I studied under Gamaliel, and I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today, Paul says. Paul begins with his defense, explaining his pedigree, explaining that he's from the good side of the tracks. He studied under the most respected of all rabbis and Pharisees at the time. And Paul adds he was more zealous for God and his law than any of those hearing his words that day, including the ones who were attempting to kill him. Verse 4. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul embodied what this crowd was attempting to do, bringing persecution against someone who believed the gospel was the better way, the only way, the real way to please God, rather than just attempting to keep rules. But instead, the better way was to be in relationship with God. And that is what Paul is now proclaiming. What was amazing about God's work in Paul was that he could go from such a violent opponent of the way, which was what the Christians were called in this day, to not only one who believed, but one who was tasked and understood the importance of the mission to make much of Jesus. There is something beautiful about Paul testifying to what he testifies about, because unlike a lot of us, he was willing to admit that at one point he was wrong. But honestly, this drastic change would probably have to be brought on by a drastic intervention of God. And that is what Paul is about to testify to. He's going to share his story of God's intervention, and that is what a Christian testimony is. And I wonder if we don't realize that all the time. I have heard so many testimonies in churches and Christian outreaches that have lacked Jesus. They've lacked God intervening. They don't so much sound like Jesus is the hero of my story, rescuing me, but instead, intellectually, maybe we figured it out or we did a lot of good. Or maybe when we share a testimony, we talk about how we're the hero. Listen, if your testimony doesn't exalt Jesus, it might be a testimony of something, but it's not Christian. A Christian testimony makes much of Jesus by sharing how God intervened and ultimately interrupted our lives with grace. Here's what it says in verse 6. Paul says, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Did anyone else hear Morgan Freeman's voice just then? I did. Who are you, Lord? I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Paul begins his testimony with who he was and what he had done. And I hope each and every single one of us who identifies as a Christian can testify to who you once were and who God has now made you. I think for many of us, or really many of you, because I didn't, who have grown up in attending a church or never really known life without being Christian-ish, if you know what I'm saying, that you might discount your testimony a little bit. But listen, when you first believe, something happens. Your eternity 
is hijacked. Your identity is changed. According to the word written to the church in Corinth, you were made a new creation. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. You were not an updated version of yourself. You are iOS 16.3.1, I looked on my phone, has got nothing on you when you first believed because God's transaction for your life was not to make you better. It was to trade his life for yours so you could be made alive. And I am grateful that when I came to Christ, I didn't just become eternally better but now I'm alive, all because of God's grace, his sacrifice, and his power. And if you grew up in the church and you became a Christian, possibly even gradually, because I think that's some of our stories, or if you had an intervention of God in an instant, the same is true of you. You were made a new creation. And that is why each and every one of our Christian testimonies is so important to be shared with others because it highlights and proclaims the goodness of God and his grace. I was called this past week by a friend in this church who manages a lot of people in the technology sector, so good luck figuring out who it is, and he was struggling with the fact that his company has and might continue to lay off people around and under him. He called the process this situation, but asked how specifically he could shepherd and care for these individuals who are probably a lot less motivated with the possibility of being laid off on the horizon than they were before they knew this. I told him he should care. I told him he should pray for them, both when they don't know that he's praying for them and perhaps if the conversation permits for them because prayer is one of the most evangelistic things that we as followers of Christ can do. There is something beautiful about having the intimate relationship of talking to God in front of someone, explaining to them your intimacy with God. But I also think that with everything that has happened in the past few years, and in Silicon Valley specifically, a Christian a person who has put their trust in Jesus, who identifies with the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, we personally have a hope that no one else has. We have a hope that this life is not the best life. Save your yellow for people who are perishing. We have a next life to invest in and look forward to, and while many won't see it that way, some will. And so, to my friend, I pointed out that it is often when we are at our lowest that we are actually opening, open to hearing about God and his grace and his hope. And I'm so proud of this friend of mine because he sees this opportunity to care and shepherd those that even in his place of business, he considers an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And what does a witness do? Testify. Paul goes on, verse 9, My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of the brilliance of the light has blinded me. Saul, who we know as Paul, had this interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, I just feel like I need to state the obvious for some. 
Something that far too many of us probably take for granted, especially here at COV, but not based on the announcements that I just heard because no one could really remember what Easter was about. Why is it important that Paul saw this vision of Jesus? Well, it's a vision for one. But listen, Jesus died. And not only that, he rose from the dead. Mind blown. Probably not. You've probably heard that quite a lot here. And maybe some of you even believe it. And you should, because there's a ton of evidence to say that he rose from the dead. And if you don't know that evidence, just stay a while. You'll continue to hear it each week. Now, do you think everyone in this context in which Paul was speaking, or uh, uh, this crowd that Paul was speaking to, believed that Jesus had risen from the dead? Now, they weren't getting their news daily, possibly like we are, and it did happen in Jerusalem, and I'm sure like news outlets today, there was a lot of bias in what was communicated, and probably even some suppressing of news so people wouldn't believe certain things. See, this is not a new idea, guys. And there was this uproar in Jerusalem from the gospel of grace that was dividing people. It was creating a sense of chaos. And I personally believe it was a great chaos, but it was still a chaos because the gospel gives life, but it also offends. The gospel gives life, but it also offends some. And this is what was happening around this news that Jesus didn't die an insurrectionist, but that Jesus was the resurrection that brought life to all who believed. Verse 12, Paul continues, a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law, highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Paul continues about what happened, explaining how Ananias, a very respected observer of the law, a follower of Jesus, was used by God in Paul's testimony to help bring Paul's eyesight back. Verse 14, then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, Jesus's mouth. Ananias tells Paul that he has a commission from God to know God's will, and let me just add, to know God's will found in God's word, and that Paul, seeing the righteous one, Jesus, also hears God's very words from Jesus's mouth. Not because Jesus is a prophet, but because Jesus is God. Ananias continues, verse 15, you will be his witnesses to all the people who have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now, Paul's commission is to testify to what he has seen and heard from the Lord Jesus specifically. And Ananias then tells Paul to get up and after he has received his sight and go and be baptized. But he adds, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. I don't like this phrasing but I, because I know how it gets misinterpreted. And I think there is something that we need to dig just a little bit deeper into. And most of us, well, maybe some of us already know this, but I feel like I have to state it. What is it that washes away our sins? Some of you are singing the song in your head. And as long as your answer is Jesus, and Jesus is attached to it in some way, you're probably right. But ultimately, the symbol for our sins being washed away or forgiven is the cross of Christ. Not that actual physical one, but it looks like that. 
Baptism in and of itself does not make you clean or cleaner or saved. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Baptism is not salvation. Baptism is a symbol of your identifying with Christ, who is your salvation. Baptism is an ordinance. It is something Jesus told those who were followers of his to do. Not to be saved, but because they were saved. They are then identifying with Jesus' death, being lowered into the water, and his resurrection, being raised out of the water for the glory of his name. Baptism does not save you, only Jesus does. But Jesus did say something at his own baptism that possibly could be misinterpreted. Matthew 3, 13 through 15, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. This is John the Baptist. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. We, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. This is not a one and done, nor is it you must do this in order to be saved. This is an example that Jesus, the one true son of God, did and then told us to also do, not out of have to, not out of to be saved, but out of our salvation being identified with Jesus already. So church, I'm beating that horse because here's what I want to know from you. Have you bowed a knee to Jesus? Do you believe that he is God, that he lived, that he died for your sin, that he physically rose from the dead? Do you intend to follow him all the days of your life and identify with his, as, with his grace as your salvation, not your working really hard to be good? If you say yes to those questions and you've never been baptized once you believed, then you should fill out a card and say, I want to be baptized. And we'll figure out a way to either help you do so, it might be a little cold, but don't let that deter you, or come to know Jesus so it is proper for you to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. So Paul continues, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, Leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Now remember, Paul is saying this to the crowd. He's telling them what happened. Paul, who is faithful to his Jewish heritage, prays in the temple, and then he sees Jesus again in a trance, in a vision, where Paul says that he personally saw Jesus and he spoke with Jesus, telling him to leave Jerusalem immediately. I think many, ever since reading this portion of this text, will also say that they've had a similar experience. Listen, you're not Paul, okay? Even if your name's Paul, you're not Paul. And the way extra biblical experiences get thrown around makes me a bit more cautious than perhaps the average Christian. But I'll say this, could Jesus do this for any of you? Yes! He absolutely could. But does he need to? No, he does not. Because all that we need to walk in righteousness and grow and mature is found in this. We just got to be willing to open it and read it and study it with other people. Verse 19. 
Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Paul continues to make a case, even as he spoke to Jesus in this vision, that he had done so much harm against the followers of Jesus, and perhaps Paul felt a sense of guilt that he had to speak his testimony to the Jews in Jerusalem. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now Paul, while being the most religious and pious of any Hebrew Pharisee, was being led to be a voice not to his own kind, but to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And while Paul, like most of us, probably do and would disagree with God's plan, as it seems way more poetic to send Paul to the Jews, Jesus was sending Paul to those who were not just like him. And I have always thought that God did this to flex. He did this because it wasn't Paul and his wonderfully dramatic testimony that saves. It is God in his grace using messed up people to testify to God's goodness through Jesus. So Jesus tells Paul to go far away to the Gentiles. Look at the reaction, verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. In the prophetic words of anchorman Ron Burgundy, boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. This is one of the most racist moments in scripture. And it is this detest by the religious against the non-religious. We usually attribute bigotry to skin color, when in this case it was this religious, holier-than-thou thinking that because Paul was saying that the Gentiles also were worthy of God's grace, the religious crowd could not hear it or stand for it. Many of you are in community groups this semester, and we've been studying different parables of Jesus. That's been easy, right? Yeah. And one that you covered, which has always been really important one for me personally, is the parable of the lost son, or really the lost sons, plural. You have the younger son who wants to share, he wants his share of the estate, and wants to live how he wants to live. So his dad gives the younger son his share, and the text in Luke 15 says that the younger son wastes his share of the estate on wild living. But eventually, he comes to his senses. But he thinks he can serve his father, so at least he'll be treated as a servant. But the father, in a wonderful example of grace, reinstates the younger son into the family and treats him to a party because the father is so happy to have his son back. While this is going on, there's the elder brother who is working in the field, and he hears the beginning of this party. He hears the dancing. That's a party and is told that his younger brother has returned from his debauchery. The elder brother is furious, and here's what it says in verse 28 as Jesus tells this parable to a lot of religious people. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Has anyone ever said this to God? You're wrong for the record. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when the son of yours, not his brother, when this son of yours, the elder brother says, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and now is found. And this parable, sadly, has the elder brother where we leave off in the story, outside of the party, unwilling to go in. This is what the religious want to do. They want to earn. They want what is their share. They want fairness. Now, I'm going to mess with a lot of you that probably have thought of this a different way most of your lives. So just, you know, you can write something in the comment card, I guess. I get fairness. I want fairness too. But the religious don't realize that based on their own efforts, they would spend an eternity without God. Because it is not, not by what you do that you're made right before God. It is by the blood of Jesus and the victory of the resurrection from the dead that Jesus did for us that any of us are made righteous. You and I, we earn death. That's what we do. We sin. Yay! We do it all the time. It's not just what we do wrong. It's what we don't do right. Whoops. But God gives us life in Christ. We earn death. He gives us life in Christ. So based on that, hear me, God isn't fair. God is gracious. For those who know they can't earn salvation themselves. So this crowd, <laughs> this, this crowd starts to shout murderous threats towards Paul because of his association with Gentiles. Verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged, ouch, and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. A lot's happening here. You have the crowd reacting, shouting, throwing off their cloaks, either as a sign of outrage to what they believed as blasphemy, or perhaps preparing to stone Paul. Well, I have to get comfortable. While also throwing dust in the air, a cultural sign of outrage and or grief. The commander then orders Paul to be flogged and interrogated to find out what the crowd's problem with him is. Seems a bit crazy in our culture. You're going to beat someone as you're asking them questions. But that all showed the aggression and the vicious nature of the Roman Empire at the time. But what did Paul do? He testified to what he saw and what he heard. And this is his reaction. As they stretched out his arm or stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. Paul seemed to always have the right pedigree in whatever circumstance he was in. He always seemed to find protection somehow, which I'm going to go with. God knew what he was doing when he called Paul to proclaim his name. He used his story. He used his life experience. He used his knowledge. He used his nationality. He even used his religion all to bring glory to Jesus through Paul. And I believe God can and does the same thing through us. 
And as a Roman citizen, Paul was entitled to a trial. He would have to be found guilty before any punishment could be brought to him. What a noble idea. So this centurion, not knowing what to do, then goes to the commander himself to tell him of Paul's admission. Here's what it says, verse 27. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. I would add smirkly, but I have no idea. Verse 29, those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Paul drops the mic here, and I can't, I can't do, I won't do that, but by mentioning his Roman citizenship, as the commander had to pay and probably bribe his way into being a Roman citizen. Now, Roman citizenship was a high honor, not given to everyone. You either had to serve the Roman Empire for quite a while, you, or you had to be emancipated from slavery, or you had to purchase it. Or in this case, the most highly honored way of being a Roman citizen was by birth. And Paul, knowing that his birth into citizenship brings even more clout for him and his message used that right before the centurion would have performed a really awful deed that would have possibly brought death to the centurion by flogging a Roman citizen, Paul stops him. And even the commander knew that he stepped out of turn putting a Roman citizen into chains before Paul was found guilty of anything. So then the commander, unable to find answers to the situation, does this. Verse 30, the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. The commander then, unable to figure out why Paul was being accused by the Jews, orders the Jewish court to assemble so that they could help get answers. A bunch of religious people that disagree with one another attempting to find answers. (laughs) Stay tuned. It's about to get pretty scandalous. But that is next week, and that is Ruth's problem. All of this, (laughs) all of this that we have studied today pointed out that that Paul was on a mission, the same mission that each and every one of us that identifies with Jesus is on. And while the results, hear me, while the results are not up to us, Are the results up to us? No. No. While the results are not up to us, that is God's business. We are tasked to share and be a witness when we want to and when we don't want to. Worship team, you can come on up. Let me finish with this story. A guy named Jack had been a president of a large corporation, and when he got cancer, they ruthlessly at the corporation fired him. He went through his insurance, he used his life savings, and he practically had nothing left. A pastor visited with him with one of his church's deacons, and the deacon said to him, Jack, you speak so openly about the brief life that you have left. I wonder if you're prepared for your life after death. Jack stood up livid with rage and said, you, I won't say it, but you bleeping, bleep, 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 Christians, all you ever think about is what's going to happen to me after I die. If your God is so great, why doesn't he do something about the real problems of life? He went on to tell him that he was leaving his wife penniless and his daughter without money for college. Then he ordered the clergy to get out of his presence. 
Later, the deacon insisted they go back, and they did. And the deacon said, Jack, I know I offended you, and I humbly apologize. But I want you to know I've been working on this problem ever since. Your first problem is where will your family live after you die? There's a realtor in our church that has agreed to sell your house and give your wife his commission. I guarantee you that if you'll permit us, some other men and I will make the house payments until it's sold. Then I've contacted the owner of an apartment house down the street. He's offered your wife a three-bedroom apartment plus free utilities and an $850 a month salary in return for collecting rents and supervising plumbing and electrical repairs. The income from your house should pay for your daughter's college, and I just want you to know your family will be cared for. Jack cried like a baby. He died shortly thereafter, so wrapped up in pain, he never received Christ. But he experienced God's love even while rejecting him, and his widow, touched by the caring Christians, responded to the gospel message. The results, church, aren't up to us. We are just tasked with being willing to share to share God's grace, to share God's love, to share God's message that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ and that we can testify that God has intervened in our life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word is true and even in these passages that are not ones that I would prefer to teach, <laughs> I am grateful that there's so much in them to teach us about you teach us about relationship with your son, to teach us about grace, and to teach us about our need. And so God, would we be a people, if we want to or not, if we have been touched by the truth of your word and the, the movement of your gospel in our hearts, if you've removed the veil, may we not keep it to ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.